This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. On this week's Second Story Podcast, Ina Pinkney has led quite the life. The owner and executive chef of Ina's Kitchen in the West Loop, Ina has had the chance to serve Chicago and hear the stories of the city for years. Now, with Second Story, Ina has a chance to share her own story. And what a story it is. This story was told at Ina's Kitchen on April 5th of 2013 in a collaboration with Fet Chicago. With her story titled Prima Ballerina, Second Story presents Ina Pinkney. Every restaurant owner's dream is to unlock that door and somebody should walk through it. Over the last 22 years, the door to Inez has opened each day, ushering in a remarkable assortment of people. Because a restaurant is the only retail experience on the planet where people come in to give you their hard-earned money, they don't come in to browse, they don't come in to say, oh, do you have that hamburger in blue? There is an honor and a responsibility and an unspoken contract to be the receiver of their goodwill and their stories. It is rare that I get to share my story because I respect the boundaries of the table and there's really no seat at the table for my story. On Labor Day 1944, I stood up in my crib and I fell down. I tried again and again with my father looking on in terror. The polio epidemic that had ravaged New York City had come to Brooklyn. The March of Dimes put me in braces, the standard treatment, as was, we'll wait and see what the damage is when the fever subsides. After several months, my muscles were still not working, and because my foot now dropped from the ankle, the brace was changed to a cast. My father read that Sister Elizabeth Kenny, an Australian nurse, who had successfully treated a polio outbreak among the Aboriginal people and who was staying in New York City in the hopes of sharing her treatment. He called every hotel in New York City to find her, and when he did, spoke with her secretary. I need sister to see my child. Of course, what hospital is she in? She's not in the hospital any longer. She's home. I'm so sorry. Sister cannot see a patient in a private home. The medical establishment is giving her rather a difficult time, and she cannot leave herself open to more criticism. I'm so sorry. He asked again, was refused, and then said goodbye. The next day, he noticed that I was flicking my hair back in a funny way, or at least he thought that's what I was doing. He watched me again for another day and realized that it wasn't about my hair, Something was wrong with my neck, and his terror mounted. He called the secretary again. Please, she's getting worse. Something has changed. I'll do anything to get sister to see my child. I understand, Mr. Brody. I'll arrange it if you'll pick us up in a car and drive us back to Manhattan. He borrowed a car and picked up a very imposing woman wearing a very big hat with a feather who sat in the front seat. The secretary sat in the back. When he parked the car in front of our apartment building, Sister said, the child's doctor is in there, yes? No, he said. I cannot see her without a doctor present. 
Daddy ran around the corner and asked Dr. Sooner, our family doctor, to come with him. And only then did Sister leave the car. She cut off the cast, threw it aside, and voice booming said, This is not a broken leg. This is polio. It was wartime, and my father had to get a St. Mary's all-wool blanket from the black market. It was cut into pieces 24 inches long, 8 inches wide, and several, uh, excuse me, several were put into a pot of boiling water, and my mother, wearing three pair of rubber gloves, wrung them out and carefully wrapped them around my leg. Dry strips of blanket were then wrapped around the wet ones, and a plastic-like tablecloth wrapped around all of it. Sister determined that if a muscle was in spasm and then immobilized by a brace or a cast, it had no place to go when the spasm had ended. She felt that wet heat and massage would give the best outcome. And thus began the first of countless hot pack treatments and massages that I would endure for years. Those sessions were hard on all of us. We stopped all activity, cleared off the kitchen table, laid down blankets, applied burning hot, wet wool on tender skin, made more tender each day, warmed the cocoa butter, and massaged my leg. Then came the cleanup. To this day, I cannot bear the smell of wet wool. My father was my champion and figured out how to keep me motivated to do the stretching and strength exercises I needed to do daily. I would lie on the table and put my feet on his chest and try to push him away, always successful with the left leg, never with the right. He would massage massage my leg in long strokes as if to remind the muscles to lengthen. I was stoic because I didn't want to hurt his feelings until I reached the point of too much pain and discomfort. I would stop trying and he would wait patiently. The silence was our rest time until he began again. I was almost three. I had a love-hate relationship with the process. I knew it would help and my playmates could come in and watch, but it was really the beginning of a sense of my otherness, my complete difference from other kids and even adults. When I was sitting in my seat at school, I was the envy of all the kids because I was so smart. But when I was in the schoolyard, I was prey, targeted mercilessly, books taken and tossed, names called, isolated, marginalized. I am who my disability made me. When I was six, I was told I was going to the hospital. In 1949, I had heard of people going in, but never coming out of hospitals. And because they never prepared children for the experience in those days, I thought they were taking me to die. At six, you have no grief for a life not lived, so I had no frame of reference for this. I did, however, revel in the fact that Dr. Herb Fett, who would be fixing my heel cord, was doctor to the Brooklyn Dodgers, (laughs) my team. I gave my brother all my toys and said goodbye to everyone with a finality they could not know. When I awoke after surgery, I was sure they made a mistake. But I understood in that groggy awareness that I had a second chance. And as a result, everyone in my life gets a second chance. My life has been extraordinary. 
I've had 21 jobs and been fired from 19 of them. I fed Julia Child. Fred Astaire held me in his arms. I have skydived. I married a black man in the 60s when it was still against the law in 17 states. I skied on a glacier. I've won awards. I own this restaurant. <laughs> One never recovers from polio. The nerves are dead and the muscles are atrophied from not having received any stimulation. One can, however, pass for normal which I did for most of my life. But that all changed in the 80s when strange and unexplained symptoms appeared that caused me great confusion and concern. Most of the doctors I saw were younger than I and had never seen polio nor its aftermath. Post-polio syndrome made it into the medical lexicon, and while it answered some questions, it indicated that life for me was about to change. I now wear a leg brace, I use a cane, I can no longer walk a block, I can no longer dance, I can no longer cook in my own restaurant. Now let's get back to that unlocked door. I write a newsletter each month to inform and educate, entertain and promote. Until I sit down to write it, I never know what might be on that page. I had room for one more piece one day and decided to write a list of people I'd like to feed. Some obvious names came on the list, like John Stewart, Rachel Maddow, Elmo, Whoopi Goldberg, Frank Rich, for example. Maria Tallchief was a last-minute addition. She was this country's first Native American prima ballerina. Because of the community and relationships nurtured by me in this restaurant, it should not have come as a surprise when Marion... One of my regular customers read the newsletter over breakfast and said almost casually over her shoulder on the way out, I'll bring Maria Tallchief in next week. <laughs> I remember standing there thinking, did I hear what I just hear? She called me a few days later to set it up, Wednesday at noon. At noon, the door opened and Maria Tallchief walked through it. She sat across from me and Marion next to her. Despite years of arthritic changes to her back, hands, and legs, the carriage and position of her head were unmistakable. The impossibly high cheekbones and broad smile were dazzling. This was still the woman who had walked the earth on point. After my welcome, she said, I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> and I said, I have a story to tell you and I began. I had polio when I was 18 months old and was in braces and casts. After the paralysis subsided, I was left with a leg that was smaller, shorter, and weaker than the other. When I was three, my mother took me to the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in the hopes that seeing dance would keep me motivated to keep exercising to try harder. I was small for my age, and I remember the feeling of the velvet seat sitting on our folded coats to be able to see the stage and the staggering magic of the dimming lights and rising curtain revealing a single ballerina. In that second, I fell in love with the ballet, and I fell in love with you. After that, when my father would do my daily exercises with me and I would cry or protest, no more, Daddy, please, 
He would rub my sore leg and say, ah, Maria Tallchief wouldn't say no more. And I soldiered on. And so, Miss Tallchief, whatever mobility I was able to recover was as a direct result of your name being spoken. She was silent for a very long time, thanked me, and we both cried. The only way I could repay her to show her what she meant to me was to feed her. I made her my heavenly hearts, which are as light and as elegant as she is. That was Ina Pinkney. This story was curated by Molly Each, with performance direction by Lee Stark and a sound design by Nick Kawahara. If Ina's story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Join us at Webster's Wine Bar on May 12th and 13th for Look Mom, No Hands, Stories of Valiant Effort, our annual All Ladies Mother's Day extravaganza. We'd love to see you and your mother there. Visit our website at secondstory.com, that's 2ndstory.com, for tickets or more information. Second Story podcasts are funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Arts Works Fund, and the Chicago Community Foundation. This Second Story podcast was produced by Amanda Delheimer-Diamond, Bobby Budrisky, the Second Story Publishing Committee, Molly Each, Lee Stark, Nick Kawahara, Eric Hazen, Danielle Ezel, Sherry Pentamone, C.P. Chang, and myself. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Thanks for listening. <laughs>